Thank you, worship team. And uh, sang some good songs this morning, amen? amen? At least I hope you thought so. Um, I know everybody is either completely thrilled or out of their skulls with the events of this last week. So I'm not going to make any comments on the public affairs, except to say that we as believers, the reason we're gathered in this room is to do what that one song said, be still my soul. We need to look up and see a God who is good and is sovereign. He's on the throne. Nothing has escaped his attention. He hasn't had a heart attack this week, as people are in states of hysteria in some places. Uh, That is unbefitting for saints, just being blunt. Because we serve a great God doesn't mean we have to be happy about everything or shouldn't be all that ecstatic either, depending on which end you're on. So I don't want to say much about that. I want to lead us in prayer after we focus our attention on the God who is. So what I'd like to do this morning, for those of you who are new here or visiting, I want to explain what we've been trying to do. We've been in a series about worship. And uh, the whole point is learning that... uh, God, the Father, who made heaven and earth and made you and loves you, every person sitting in this room, he loves. All right? He cares about you. Your life matters. Sometimes we don't get that. And uh, he wants to be engaged with us because being engaged with him is the best thing for human beings, the best thing ever, even though we don't think that sometimes. It's really where we need to feed and uh, find our identity and our purpose in life and all of that. How can we know it if we don't know the God who made us? He had an intention, right? You ever seen any inventions? There's a reason for inventions. The inventor had something in mind. You really believe that stuff? Yes. There is a God in heaven who made us, loves us. And so we're trying to learn how to be worshipers who worship him, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. That's why we're here. I hope that's why you're here today. Holy cow. That rousing response has just encouraged me so greatly. Well, that's why I'm here. I'm going to talk to myself for the next half hour. All right. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. In your, in your uh, chair in front of you, there's a Bible somewhere. If you don't already have one, you can look it up in your own Bible if you have it. But if you have... The one from the chair in front of you, the NASV that we have available for all of us, you can turn to page 58, which is Exodus chapter 3. Now, I'd like to use this portion of scripture to launch us today into the subject of sacred space, if we may. And so when you find it, I'm going to ask you, uh, this is a little bit, uh, well, you know what, I'm going to let you stay seated, since some of us have uh, reasons to be in softer chairs and things like that. I'll let you stay seated, but follow along with me. Exodus chapter 3, verse 58, uh, page 58, starting in the first verse of chapter 3. You see it where it says the burning bush. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mount of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, he called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, by the way, he didn't say don't come near. He's actually saying close enough. You're close enough to get the point. You're standing on holy ground. And he also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so would you. I have a problem here. This little clicky thing doesn't have a battery or a back on it, (laughs) which means I am without power. So I'm going to have to impose on my sister to click one at a time, and I'll tell you when. 
Go ahead and put the first screen up. There it is. Hey, well-oiled machine. And here we are. Hey, if you don't have a sense of humor, you're in the wrong church. I'm just going to tell you straight up. Oh, guess what I just found? But I don't know where the back is. No, I've been looking. Aha! A miracle. There you go. You the man. Thank you, sir. That's why the battery fell out. <laughs> All righty. Very good. Sacred space. Meanwhile, back in the pews, where people are like, where am I? What's that? I'm all set now. James White wrote a book called Intro to Christian Worship, Introduction to Christian Worship. He makes a statement. Today, we're so accustomed to the Christian use of architecture. In other words, we have church buildings. We have space that we meet in. And uh, let's be candid. The reason we're having this discussion today on sacred space is because people lock into so many various opinions about sacred space that Christians start acting not like Christians anymore about it. Can you imagine? So, we're so accustomed to it that in many languages the word church refers to the building He says, just as much as to the body of believers. I'm going to say today, I think we refer to the building more than we refer to the body of believers because we've kind of lost sight of the fact that the word church, ecclesia, the called out ones, are the saints. The early church had no buildings. They had to make do. And it could be debated that our acquiring of them may or may not be a good thing. The relationships between architect and what Christians do when they worship are complex, he says. Church architecture not only reflects the ways Christian worship, but architecture, listen, also shapes worship or not uncommonly misshapes it. Gets us off track. Gets us thinking in the wrong way. So we want to speak into this a little bit. And it should be obvious from the story that we just uh, talked about, which I'll, I'll put the reminder up there. There's Charlton Heston's version from the Ten Commandments. I kind of like that, actually, the way it was dramatized, even though it's old and the technology is really poor compared to what we're used to now. That soft voice coming, Bose, Bose. I got to check this out. That's what he says. I shall turn aside. By the way, Um, When I was studying worship uh, in uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, the instructor had a great illustration of what God's trying to do with us when we come to worship. Anybody ever seen a parent with their child who's not listening go like this? Look at me. (laughs) Listen to me. You get what I'm saying? That is a great picture of what God's trying to do Because I can guarantee some of your minds are elsewhere right now. Hello? Look at me. Seek out this sacred space. This is just a place of gravel, dirt, with a bush that's burning miraculously so it's not consumed. And he says, I need to turn aside and see this unique thing. Don't run into that every day, have you noticed? And so he does, and there he meets with God. That actually is the priority about sacred space. In the Old Testament, when Abraham met with God or made a covenant, God made covenant with him. It was out in the desert. There was no special place per se, sometimes under a large tree. Depends. Then Moses is instructed to build a tabernacle where God's people will meet with him. But the point is, when God comes on the scene, it becomes sacred space. It can be just grounds. Uh, Kathy, whose husband just rescued me a minute ago, finding the back, uh, worked at Uncle Wynn's camp. 
Uh, it was uh, called Children's Bible Fellowship, a ministry to physically and mentally limited children. It was a tremendous work of faith. Uh, I consider him one of the men who discipled me in my early faith. My wife, I met her there. I won't even get into that story. My ADD wants to kick in, and I won't go there. God did so many things. I remember Uncle saying to me one day, it's as though this is holy ground because the Spirit of God has moved over this territory so many times. He's right. So if you have a bullet and you like to take notes, uh, you'll see that there's a a listing here under worship as a verge, sacred space. Uh, The first thing I want to talk about is a place for public worship because you need one. People have them. And uh, I want to speak to the reality of this even out of the Old Testament, God's dwelling place, if you will a place where he says, I will in fact meet with you. And yet we have to make sure that we get our theology correct, our doctrine of God correct. Or we make the mistake, oh, here it comes, of calling a building like this God's house. What? Yes. Let's talk about it a little bit. Remember, in the Old Testament, there were stringent regulations. God spoke to Moses. He said, make sure that you build the tabernacle according to all that I instructed you. Do it exactly. Why? A few weeks back, uh, we mentioned that worship is a reenacting of the gospel. Remember that? Anybody remember that? Oh, thank you. Reenacting. Sacred space in the Old Testament using the tabernacle was a visual aid reenacting the gospel over and over again. We've talked about this already. The shedding of blood for the remission of sin, the holy priest's garments, all of those things spoke to something that was going to be fulfilled when Jesus came, which has been, in fact, fulfilled. But in the Old Testament... The tabernacle and then the temple when it was built, the glorious temple that Solomon put in place, uh, were places of worship. Back then they had church staff. They were called gatekeepers, Levites, others like that. One of them is the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah wrote in Psalm 84, How lovely are thy dwelling places. I think we sang that this morning, didn't we? Great song, by the way. How lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed, even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. There was something about the worship there of being in the presence of God with God's people and glorifying Yahweh, the King of heaven, that ministered grace to people. And that's the way it ought to be. The gathering of the saints ought to minister grace to people. And so there is this conversation about the dwelling place of God. You read further in these verses, even the sparrow has found a place to have a nest in the, in the eaves. We've got a lot of birds with a lot of nests in the eaves, but uh, it <laughs> doesn't have quite the same effect, I think. Right, Pastor Tim? He goes on to say, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand as a gatekeeper. That's the King James Version because that's what it's referring to. The sons of Korah were part of the gatekeeping Levites. They were on staff. I'd rather be a gatekeeper only than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God. That's what he's saying. So the house of God became important. Ceremonially, it was the focal point for the children of God to gather in worship. Should I jump ahead or should I, should I ruin all the suspense? Should I, what, what should I do? Ruin it, right? Yeah, ruin it. The New Testament is when the saints gather and it doesn't matter where. In fact, let me read James uh, White again. Any Christian community needs a place for worship of the incarnate one. It can be anywhere, but it has to be somewhere. That's designated so that the body of Christ knows where to assemble. Listen to this. Early missionaries in the British Isles simply set up a cross on a pole. So like in the middle of a field, cross on a pole, that's the place, show up. And the saints would gather. And guess what? The temple of God was there. Boom. Solomon, who built the the temple, who was responsible for the building of the temple 
greatest king uh, as far as an illustration of glory and splendor and wisdom and everything else, a model, a picture, if you will, of the coming Christ. He had his theology right. Even though he builds this temple and he prays a prayer of dedication, which we're going to come back to at the end of the sermon, he prays a prayer of dedication. Lord, let your people, when they repent of sin and turn toward this house, hear from heaven and answer. But he says this, Will God deed and dwell on the earth? Behold, the heavens and the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. God is omnipresent. He can't fit in here. (laughs) So why did he bother? Because they needed a focal point of sacred space. But they understood that that wasn't really God's house like he was going to live there, as in, pagan temples where we wake up the God so that he listens to us when we make our offerings. He's the living God, and he's omnipresent, and we cannot fathom him completely. He can't possibly be confined to one space. Nevertheless, God speaks that I will make it sacred space. How? By meeting with us. Remember when they dedicated the temple, the fire of heaven fell, consumed the offering, the cloud appeared over the tabernacle, all the priests fell on their faces, all the people fell down, the Lord is God. They worship. You'd be stimulated to worship too. Trust me. So he says, God says to Moses, put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the ark of the testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. I think sometimes we fuss more about sacred space than we fuss about whether God's meeting with us. In fact, we've seen very little of him meeting with us. It can happen in a chapel, but it doesn't have to. I already mentioned that it happened on grassy fields across the river in Carmel, New York. And I can name other places where sacred space occurred because people met with God. But it can also happen in a chapel. I had the privilege one time of going to Kentucky and uh, visiting Asbury Seminary. Anybody ever heard of Asbury Seminary? Okay, a few of you get out. All right, you, you, you read. All right. It's a very interesting place. Here's why. Not because it's a Methodist-backed school, because there's a chapel in there which is quite, quite formal, very, very traditional type of a chapel. But across the front of the platform, over the organ and all of that, it says, Holiness to the Lord. And one year, back when I was a kid, a bunch of students were praying earnestly for God to show up, and he did in revival authority that broke the hearts of the entire student body. Transforming. You can look it up. Google Asbury Revival, and you'll find it. It became genuine sacred space. Not just a religious building, but genuine sacred space because God chose to meet with his people. Whether ground or chapel, indoors, outdoors, it doesn't really matter. You can have some pretty beautiful churches. One time, I had the privilege of being in Red Square. Anybody recognize that building? St. Basil's. Great place of worship. The only kind of worship you can do there now is in your own personal heart as you're looking at the art and the icons in the building because this is a government-owned museum. God no longer is meeting there in that sense if you will. Beautiful facility, quite worthless as far as having worship services with the body of Christ today. If you're trusting in your sacred space more than you're trusting in the one who makes it sacred, he just might raise it to the ground like he did with the temple of the children of Israel. It was gone until they came back from exile. It was gone. The next section in your notes is about private worship, and I decided that if I preach all the way through this, we'll be here way too long because I have this terrible habit of being a long-winded preacher. Yes, I'm trying to discipline myself to make it shorter, and all of God's people said, don't be so agreeable. 
I love you too. <laughs> but private worship, what I, I actually put the, uh, the notes that you have in your bulletin, I actually did the verses in reverse. The first verse, 1 Corinthians, is really the second point, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, talk about a different temple. Does anybody know what the verse says? Oh, you know what? It's in here, so let me just put it up real quick. Private worship. Not that one. Don't look at that one. This one. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Everybody who's been in the Bible at all knows this, right? Therefore, glorify God with your body. Oh, man, the implications are profound, are they not? We don't have time to unpack all of that right now. But God says very specifically, because the Holy Spirit indwells the true Christian, it's a temple of a sort. It's sacred space. Do you all understand? Your body is sacred space. Therefore, you should treat it accordingly. The context of this is a strong rebuke to the church against fornication. That is, any sexual activity outside of marriage. That's what he's talking about. What? Our culture has totally lost sight of any such concept. Okay? But that's what he says. But we have a body indwelled by the Spirit that gives us the potential to press into sacred space in our own personal times with God. Sacred space. I don't have time to unpack it all. Some other time when we're talking about our discipleship, it would be appropriate. But you need to make room for yourself to meet with God. It's not going to happen by accident. Oh, I'll get around to it. We used to give out little wooden round to it. Anybody remember those? Because the person says, I'll get around to here, have one. You know, because you're never going to get around to it. But here, now you got around to it. It's a little joke. You guys don't get out much. Okay, so, but that was one of the verses, and it's talking about us making space for quiet time. There's a reality of spiritual, uh, sacred space happening with us. The other dimension of, uh, of uh, private worship has to do with this. Uh, um, no, 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 back up. That's my fault. I did that all wrong. We all, with unveiled faith, behold, be, face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same ib- image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord. Which Lord? The Spirit, specifically, is what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead. This is talking about the transformation that happens both in our quiet times, private worship, and what happens when we gather as saints and when we bump into each other as brothers and sisters. It cannot be overemphasized. The attitude that saints in America have, if they are in fact saints, toward the church of Jesus is sinful. I don't know how else to put it. We're missing the opportunity to be all that we were called to be. We were praying this morning before we started worship about our feeling insignificant. And the fact is there are times you should feel insignificant. You look at the universe, you look at the immensity of God, man, am I a tiny speck. At the same time, he shed his son's blood to rescue you, you're so significant. That we're all important and we're either playing in the game of eternity or we're sitting on the sidelines. And some of us aren't even cheering from the sidelines. So we miss out. Let me give you an example of what I'm trying to talk about. The impact of the Spirit working through sacred space in other saints. We have an impact on one another. I told this story a long time ago. And so I'm sure it's long forgotten so I can get away with it again, right? So I'm running out of illustrations. I can't find my illustration box. I'm kidding. So I had a day years ago when I was living up in Binghamton where I was going to the pastor's prayer meeting. We used to pray together every Thursday morning at 6.30 in the morning. We would meet in the basement of Practical Bible College, their um, library. Not great digs, but it worked for us. We would get together. I went one morning. Nobody has ever been like this, I'm sure. No one in this room has ever felt like this. I just am going to go make the donuts today. You know, I'm just, I hate this. I hate that I had to get up early. I'm not feeling anything. I don't feel much faith. I don't want to hang out with those brothers. One of them might be cheerful. (laughs) Nobody here has ever felt like that, right? 
I just, I, this is a waste of time. But you know what? It was that little tweak deep down in my soul because I'm a follower of Jesus and his DNA is in me. He said, get up and go. So I got up and went. And I went into the prayer meeting. We started talking and praying and I'm sitting there going, oh, oh. and my dear brother who I will love to the day I die, Mark Lucas, is sitting across from me, and he opened the scripture to the cha- a chapter in Mark where Peter is speaking to Jesus when Jesus says, push out and drop your nets again. Oh, come on, Lord. You don't know a thing about fishing. You are so... Okay, okay, Jesus, but because you said so, I'll go and drop my nets. You'll see. We've already been fishing all night and caught nothing. You know what happened? Boom. (laughs) Bursting their nets. So he tells that great story, and the Holy Spirit hit me square in the face like a thunderbolt. And I, because what was getting me down was I felt like I had borne nothing. I had gotten no fruit. I had caught no fish, or whatever illustration you want to use, and I was feeling hopeless. And all I needed to know was that Jesus already knew you've worked all night and caught nothing. Shut up and do what I say, and you'll see something happen. And it did. It was like I was raised from the dead. Totally energized. We don't have any. How much, ex, well, I don't want to be careful that I don't catalog everybody, but do you have any expectation the Holy Spirit might actually show up through one of your brothers or sisters? Transform us. I've also quoted this before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The word of Christ, remember I've said this before, the word of Christ and my brother God has willed that we should seek and find his living word, the living power of the spirit and his word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of man. The Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother. My heart is uncertain. My brother's heart is certain. And so when he speaks life to me, the spirit can show up. That becomes sacred space between us. And the study that we're doing uh, in uh, spiritually, emotionally, uh, Dr. Phil's remake, spiritual book, whatever the title is, he talks about that sacred space that happens in the dialogue and interaction that goes on between brothers and sisters. I am way ahead in my spiritual life because other brothers and sisters have ministered grace to me speaking the word of Christ. We all need it. You can keep feeding off the internet. It's not going to transform. It's not going to happen. One last picture of that goes back to the personal time and space that we commit ourselves to so that we can have sacred space where God can speak to us. Anybody heard of John Wesley or Charles Wesley, any of those big names? Anybody ever heard of him? Have you ever heard of the Methodist Church? Well, blame him, okay? All of those churches are the fruit of uh, John Wesley's ministry of multiplication, teaching disciples how to disciple each other. Methodist groups, that's how it happened. Not one hired minister. All the people ministering to each other, building each other up. Well, he and his brother were results of a strong, faithful, praying mother. Did you know that? Susanna Wesley. When I was in London, I actually found her resting place. It's really kind of cool, right, right across the, uh, the street there from John Wesley's digs and his chapel and his mission station is a cemetery with some big names in it, including, I believe, his, his mother that I recall. And Susanna Wesley, in order to have quiet time back in the age where they would have 8, 9, 10, 12 kids in one small house, with a kitchen, with a fireplace, the only place you could stay warm to have time to read the scripture. She would sit in a chair in the corner of the kitchen, take her apron and put it up over her head, and that meant, you disturb me, you're dead. (laughs) Not literally. (laughs) And she prayed powerfully for her children, and the fruit is part of church history. Private, sacred space. Let's move on, though, to the last point I want to say. Don't you know that your body... Oh, no, I already showed you that one. 
profitable worship. This is where I start to meddle. I haven't started to meddle yet. Now I want to meddle. Profitable worship. I just want to share some insights. From the New Testament perspective, Jesus, here's what it says in Hebrews, went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made man, uh, man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, are you with me? The heavenly, all by his own blood. Now we have become the temple of God, the body of Christ. It's a metaphor, right? Here's the verse that speaks to it. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians, can I just be very clear on the Greek here? Do you, when I say you in English, you can't tell what I'm really saying, but in Greek you can tell. The Greek is saying, do use no? Do use? Are you with me? It's plural. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. You read the context just for fun, you'll find that he is actually speaking with great rebuke because people were mistreating each other in the body of Christ. They were causing divisions. And the very next verse says, anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. You want to mess with God's elect? Just telling you what it says. I'm not making this up. Check it yourself. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? This metaphor, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, all of that, the people of God indwelled by the Holy Spirit, called out of the world to be followers of Jesus and to be true worshipers in spirit and in truth. That's who we are. In an absolute sense, then, the physical presence of a building doesn't matter anymore in the absolute sense which should have some implications for things that we have as rules and regulations sometimes in what we do. The body of Christ is a living congregation of people. There is, however, even though in the absolute sense it's not necessary, there is room for utilizing sacred space. Just like those missionaries put a cross on a pole in the middle of a field, we meet here. So when we meet here, in a sense, it becomes sacred space. Are you following me? All right, so this is not, I promise you, I, I hate to even do this, but not, I don't hate it enough to stop me. It's not a crass advertisement in any way, but we commandeered the gymnasium, the gymnasium for our karate class on Wednesdays. That gymnasium is used by the school all week for all kinds of activities. Sometimes we have socials in there. So we have fellowship times together. They have ball games in there. They have all kinds of uh, R&R activities for the kids during the week. But when I go in there for our class, we set that place apart and everything changes. When I step on that floor, I actually bring Japanese culture with me. I bow. I step in. Everyone who comes in does the same. We address each other. I'm no longer Pastor John. I'm Dr. Hako or Mr. Hako or Sir because it's a different culture. We have just commandeered that space for a different purpose. And people might even wander through, and I have to ask them, have to step off the floor, please. Shoes are off. Japanese don't wear their shoes in the house. Shoes are off. And then when we're done and we bow out, it can go back to its other use. Don't ever confuse that. Sacred space is when God is supposed to be here to meet with us, then it's sacred space. Later, we could use this to do all kinds of things. It's material. <gasps> that sounds heretical. It's not. So when we meet, I don't care whether it's in my living room or whether it's in the basement of the church building or whether it's in someone else's basement. Where do you think a lot of the uh, saints had to meet during the days of oppression under communism in Russia. Underground. Underground, yes. Hidden bunkers, basements of old buildings and warehouses, some of the dingiest, most not-cathedral-like circumstances ever. And yet God met with them. 
and the church multiplies. Same thing in China today. The church is growing faster than anywhere else. Maybe they're onto something. And we're hung up with what color the walls are or what we're sitting on or whatever. I'm not here to pick on anybody. Yes, ma'am. Was Wormbrandt. And they had light. Yes. And they actually praised God for the, the insects because it meant that they could actually meet as Christians and praise God without the guard because the guard couldn't stand it. Does everybody hear what she said? Oh, amen. Wasn't it? Amen. Because they were meeting and, and Jesus was with them. Amen. Even that, and the guards left them alone because they couldn't stand the light. You want me to give her my microphone? You come up here, sister. Okay. That is excellent. What she said, for those who couldn't hear it, is that when Richard, Richard Wormbrand, who was, wrote the book Tortured for Christ, and that's where, um, I can't remember the name of their group is, but it's a, an outreach to support those who are persecuted, the persecuted church around the world. When they were in their prison camp, the gulags or wherever it was, um, they all, all the Christians ended up with lice. They were praising God for the lice. Would you do that? Uh, I already know I wouldn't. But anyway, the point is, I would have to adjust my attitude. The lice was a gift because the guards would not come near them. They could worship freely. It was a blessing. We think we have crises, you know. I'm thinking about the people in Iraq today who are trying to be being dragged out by ISIS. They're going to be sacrificed like... Uh, like cattle. Those are crises. You know, a little drama in the church building, not a crisis. Really isn't. Listen to this comment from Leander Keck. Preaching, and that's what I'm doing, should energize all Christians to ennoble whatever space they occupy. There is room for formal space, a uh, sacred space. I tried to communicate that last week, I think it was, or the week, it was in the last two weeks, where I said, try to be conscious of the fact that what you're doing may be disrupting another person from gazing on the glory of Jesus. I hate to interrupt anyone who is engaged in worship. What are you doing this morning to help facilitate your brother and sister in worship? How are you helping them along rather than distracting them? When they walked in, did you immediately throw up something you're upset about so that they've got that on their mind trying to worship today? Happens to pastors all the time. All the time. Shouldn't. Really shouldn't. So think about, we should be thinking about what am I bringing to the table to honor and glorify God rather than what am I getting out of this today? How have I done in my, my duty of reenacting the gospel and giving thanks to God today? And how have I helped and ministered life and grace to the people around me? But let me just be candid about the space that we utilize and hope will be sacred. That is, as God meets with us here to get... So should you. You didn't get up this morning, not brush your teeth, not comb your hair, not put your clothes on. No one's sitting here in their jammies, I hope. How come you worried about your outward appearance? Because excellence is doing the best you can with what you have, right? <laughs> I ain't going there, no. no. But you know what I mean. Why is that not sin? It's not sin, it's the right thing. So why would making a place look good so that it's attractive to people be sin? It's not. Another comment was, oh, it's a waste of money. Not in my book. I mean, sometimes it can be. People put, listen, I've been in churches where the pastor has a huge 40 by 30 office with a water fountain running in the middle. I'm sure God was thoroughly blessed. I'm not judging. I'm not his judge. I'm not. We're not asking for that kind of thing. We're just trying to make the place palatable. So there are some implications. Let me just read one more thing from Mr. White. Architecture reflects Christian worship by providing the setting and shelter needed by a community to carry out worship together, to edify God and each other. Remember last week? 
Worship is for God first, hands down, but to sanctify man as well, man and woman, okay, men and women. And I want to even go beyond that to reach out to those who are not yet sanctified. Architecture reflects. This is perhaps obvious. Not even a football crowd would sit still in below zero weather. So there is a point where the pain (laughs) of what you're dealing with in your facility may be beyond what I can stand. Coldness, hardness, uh, austerity, whatever it happens to be, isn't in and of itself spiritual. It just isn't. Can I just be clear? Nobody's, well, I don't think anybody's in trouble here. People have different opinions. People have different preferences. I've been in churches. There are places where my memory kicks in, where when I go to certain places and it even smells like the church, I was a brand-new Christian, and I go, oh. You know what I mean? But I don't have to have that to find sacred space. That's becoming an idol if I have to have that. I'm putting that ahead of the sacred space I need with God who transforms me. How do we worship and how do we worship and witness well? Because worship is God first, man second, but it also, I believe, is like the city on the hill that makes those who are outside look at us and say, what is it that they're all wired up about? Why do they do this every week? You know, I'm impressed you're all here today. Seriously. I mean, I think about that sometimes. I think about, I just, I just met with a pastor of a mega church up in Albany with, uh, with the, the school team, Kevin Barry and all. And we had a little private time together afterward. And he said to me, what do you think of the condition of the church in America today? Oh, boy. He asked me a tough question. I'm not going to give you everything I said. But the fact is, that lack of attention to God that is obvious to my neighbors and my friends, that is a witness in itself, is almost dissipated. So when I look out at you today, I mean, i got to tell you, I'm grateful you're here. Do you follow me? That we're here worshiping God together, you fanatics. All right. Doing the best we can with what we have. God first, us second, and I believe that there is a spillover effect. We're going to talk next week about the gathering of the saints and then the scattering. Why do we scatter? But let me just say something about the temple of God as we are gathered together in the sacred space that we're in. Uh, and I, and I, I, maybe I should you know, ask a Q&A. I mean, I know that I know people are, it's an adjustment to have the pews gone. It's an adjustment to have coffee. If you were Jews worshiping at the tabernacle, we'd be having a barbecue at the back of the church, let alone coffee and donuts. Are you with me? I'm telling you the truth. We have a totally wrong or different or limited view of what worship is involving. Worship in the Old Testament was a celebration of all the saints together eating. Eating was always a picture of fellowship. Where do you think the Lord's table came from? It's a picture of that. The early church had a meal as well as the Lord's table. I am not on anyone's case. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm asking us to open our thinking to what does God actually command and look for. You know what? If coffee ends up being a distraction from true worship, we'll kill it. Peace? No peace? Any other options? (laughs) Here's one of my favorites. Jesus goes into the temple. He overturns tables. Anybody remember that story? Makes a whip, drives people out. He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Can I just make something clear about this story? Because people get it wrong all the time. The reason Jesus was so furious, and that's why the Isaiah text is quoted in Mark's gospel. It doesn't come out in the other gospels. 
But in Mark's gospel, the underlying issue comes out. The Jews were commanded to bring sacrifices. They would travel a long distance. Rather than drag your lamb with you, you would come to Jerusalem and buy a lamb. You'd convert your lamb at home to money, bring your money, buy a lamb, have the lamb sacrificed. So you needed to have a bazaar, if you will, to sell all the things that were necessary for worship. Okay, that's fair. No problem. Here's the problem. They took up all the space outside where the Jews were allowed to go in, the space where the Gentiles, who would most assuredly come seeking this great God who transformed history, they took up all that space and made no room for the Gentiles. It was all about them and making money, and they can just go to hell, literally. No wonder Jesus was infuriated. Solomon, who dedicated the glorious temple, said, when the Gentile, when the Goy, when the foreigner hears of your great name, because he will surely hear of your great name, how you took your people out of Egypt, defeated and judged the gods of Egypt, and all of that brought them through the wilderness, put them in this promised land. How will they not know about your great name? When he hears about you and he comes to this temple and turns toward you and prays, hear the Gentiles' prayer and do whatever he's asking so that all the world might know that you are the living God. Holy mackerel! How did we miss that? So, Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's a quote from Isaiah. The nations will come to me. He's wanting them to come. You were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and you blew it. Church, you were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and we're blowing it many, many times. Called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a robber's den. Something is to spill over and out. And that's why we're trying to adjust the ethos of our assembly. I don't know how else to put it. We're trying to adjust our ethos. It's not just about us being a happy little Christian family. Jesus said there are other sheep not of this fold. I must bring them also. You don't think any live around here? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And so we're simply trying to make it as comfortable, as user-friendly, as easily explainable as possible. I hope I've been speaking English clearly today and everybody can follow what I'm saying. That's what we're trying to do. Any adjustments we make, we're not going to do it just to be capricious, but trying to bring a drawing effect. You know, when you go to some churches... And I I think I even shared with uh, the people we were trying to um, train people for Sunday morning hospitality, right? Is Don in the room? Oh, he's teaching downstairs. Where's Angela? She's here, right? Angela, how's how's our group going? Are we building it up? Do we have enough helpers? You could use some more. When we have so many people that she has to turn them away, then I know we're changing our attitude, right? In other words, amen. And then when they come, Pastor John, a little secret, Pastor John probably isn't going to be able to touch every one of them. I heard that. You need to. You need to house of prayer for all the nations. See, that's what the church has been called to. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, da-da-da-da. You all know the Great Commission. But we always end up ingrown and looking at ourselves. We need to start looking out. We need to become healthy disciples and look outward. And when you see them, care about them. Sometimes when we enter churches and my daughter, we were ta- I was talking to that group in preparation for looking outward, and I told the story of my daughter and son-in-law who moved up to Albany. He's with the military, and uh, he, they went to church one Sunday morning, and I can't remember what day was it. 
It was Easter Sunday. They walked in. There was nobody at the door. They came in. There was nobody inside the doors. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know where the children were. They didn't know anything. They could hear some noise down the hall where there was obviously a worship service going on, but couldn't find anything. Finally went into the service, stood there. A few people stared at them, didn't say anything to them. My, are you feeling the warm fuzzies yet? Needless to say, before the service was over, they had left for home. Nobody even spoke to them. Nobody interacted. What it li- it's like this. Go away! That's the signal that some churches put out. Don't want to do that. Do you? No, don't want to do that. So, yeah, it doesn't this means you. I found a lot more nasty signs too, but I couldn't use them. <laughs> Go away. But that's what it feels like, right? And we don't want to be there. Thanks for enduring. Any questions about sacred space? I'm actually early. I'm going to let us go. Everybody said, yay. Any questions? Who's mad at me? Don't care. Anyway, so, no, I'll talk with you after. Anyone? Let's stand together. We bless your name today, God, that you cared enough about us to break through every kind of barrier and every dimension of discomfort to come into a broken, dirty world in order to rescue us. In a month, we're going to celebrate that big event. And we often forget that we, as the body of Christ, have been called to be like you. So you entered into humiliation. You entered into humanity's mess. You endured insults. You were God, and people treated you like dirt. They hated you and even succeeded in putting you to death. But it didn't deter you from fulfilling your Father's plan so that every human being, everyone in this room, everyone that's ever lived, everyone on the planet right now, matters to you for the sake of your Son's blood. The gospel is for them to bring us into right relationship with the one who made us. Help us to be about our Father's business, we pray. If today we're encouraged, fan the flame. If today we're convicted, help us not to close our ears, turn our back. I'm not going to change. If our, if our space has become uncomfortable, then, Lord, there's something we need to see. Would you help us today? Put your angels around your people. Bless us, we pray. Uh, Not bless us just because we want every little blessing, but bless us with yourself in helping us and living with us and through us and leading us. And let us see signs of your intervention on our behalf all through this week. And we'll thank you. In the great name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Or not.